I will invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we are going to, I'll just be looking at three verses today, verses 24 to 26. So I'll invite you to read along with me. Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It can be challenging, difficult as Christians to understand the appropriate relationship we ought to have with material goods, with material things. Uh, We are aware, of course, that Jesus taught that we cannot serve two masters. We will love one and hate the other. And he said that in the context of warning against serving and and worshiping mammon or, or wealth. Uh, We are aware the Bible teaches of our our very deceptive human hearts. So we are open to this conclusion uh, that many have made that material goods are inherently bad. Uh, Jesus warns about them. We see warnings about them. We have sinful hearts that uh, do wicked things and lead us into wickedness. And so people might conclude that, therefore, these things are not good. Uh, Spiritual things are good. Physical things are therefore bad. Uh, Moreover, we add to that the fact that we have seen in Ecclesiastes so far that wealth, uh, with its accompanying material goods and pleasures, uh, is certainly uh, not to be one's ultimate purpose in life, serving uh, or living in order to attain through uh, work or whatever wealth. Uh, This vanity, the the emptiness of this has been trumpeted uh, repeatedly in the opening couple of chapters, and we've gone over this in the previous weeks. So again, we might end up landing at this conclusion uh, that there is really uh, that 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 material things are bad, uh, that pleasure and wealth is not good. Um, So this leads to this question we might ask, should you feel guilty when you sit down and enjoy a good meal with your family? If you have food in your cupboards and you have a fridge to preserve food, uh, should you feel bad about that? Should you feel guilty for that pleasure, for having those things? Uh, If you lay down at night in a house that is yours and it's a pretty nice house and it's to the temperature that you desire, should you feel guilty about that? Are you guilty? Is it wrong to be glad for these things? Is it bad thing to enjoy? Is it sinful if we enjoy these things and more? Uh, perhaps maybe more fundamentally, the question is, is it right to enjoy life? Are we allowed to enjoy ourselves? Again, we know trials and suffering, they come to Christians. In fact, they're, they're guaranteed. We know that from Scripture. Jesus suffered. He said his people will suffer. Paul told Timothy that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will 
be persecuted. And so does this mean that we shouldn't be enjoying life? Are we guilty of something bad if we've just had a really good day? Well, Ecclesiastes does help, I think, to liberate us from some of the guilt that perhaps you've been made to feel. Uh, Maybe through maybe misreading scripture, maybe through well-intentioned believers uh, instructing you in these matters. Uh, It liberates us from multiple errors. And as we come here to chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, we've seen so far everything that has been written in Ecclesiastes. uh, We've seen nothing positive really stated. Everything has been vanity. He hasn't really said anything uh, hopeful yet. Uh, We have talked about hopeful things because he's, he's ultimately going to get there. Uh, but in terms of what we've covered so far in first two chapters, we haven't had any any good news. It's all about the vanity. But as chapter two ends, a ray of light begins to shine through. Now, it's not the whole sun, uh, but it is truth that begins to illuminate the darkness. And he's going to build on what he says here into next week. We'll see it into chapter three and throughout the book as well. And he'll bring in other uh, good things as well as he goes through this. So in these verses that we're looking at today, we see that the good things in life are indeed to be enjoyed as a gift from God. The good things in life are indeed to be enjoyed as gifts from God. So look at verse 24. It says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, as we think about all the different statements that Solomon makes about different things like toil, wisdom, it can be hard at times challenging to try to keep it all straight, try to keep it all together. Because he seems to say very different things about the same topic, depending on where you are in the book. So, for example, we've seen him talk about wisdom. We've seen him decry wisdom, uh, but then also speak about some of the benefits of wisdom. So, you know, as we saw, I think it was last week, um, there's obvious benefits to to wisdom in life. Um, But he has also made very clear that it has some some clear limitations. It does not satisfy some ultimate purpose. It's similar with these uh, matters of toil and pleasure. We've seen him proclaim the vanity of these things. In fact, in verse 18, last time we looked at how he said he hated his toil. Because he realized he would just one day die and then he'd have to leave it to somebody else. And yet earlier in verse 10, he said that he received enjoyment in his toil. So he says he received enjoyment, then he says he hates it. And here he is talking about it again in the context of enjoying it saying there's nothing better than to enjoy work and food this is a good thing and i think in all of this solomon throughout the book of ecclesiastes as we as we go is seeking to give us a balanced perspective he's going to um shoot down sort of the 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 wrong ways we tend to view uh these matters and make them into ultimate purposes and he'll shoot that down it seems like he has no use for these things and then later he'll build it back up with some Uh, positive statements about these matters. Here's what uh, Dwayne Garrett, a Baptist 
uh, scholar in his commentary says in, in about these verses, he says, we should not understand nothing is better in a rigidly literal sense, as if the teacher were saying that enjoyment of food and possessions is the goal of life. In context, he is talking about how one should view life with respect to labor and the fruit of labor. He is not therefore negating the worth of higher values, but he insists that people should learn how to enjoy the return they get on their labor. So labor, the resulting fruit of that labor, food, shelter, etc., is not a good ultimate purpose to serve in life, as he has made clear, but it is nevertheless still a good thing. It is a good thing, and it is right to enjoy it. So much of life is spent doing these things, eating, working, repeating. And the Bible does not teach that these are just simply meaningless enterprises if we understand them correctly. If they're again, if they're ultimate ends, then yes, they're just it's it's vanity, it's pure vapor, you're grasping at nothing. But Ecclesiastes does teach that they are to be enjoyed as good gifts from God. He says there, this also is from the hand of God, this eating and drinking and finding enjoyment in one's labor. If you look down to chapter 3, verse 13, which we'll get to next time. Again, he says, eating and drinking and taking pleasure in toil is God's gift to man. It's his gift. Derek Kidner writes, in themselves and rightly used, the basic things of life are sweet and good. Food, drink, and work are examples of them. And the preacher will remind us of others. He's talking about chapter 9 into chapter 11 when he talk, commends enjoying one's, uh, the wife of one's youth and, and, and other issues, other things along with uh, work and, and, and food and drink and so on. Kidner continues, he says, what spoils these things? is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give, a symptom of the longing which differentiates us from the beasts, but whose misdirection is the underlying theme of the book. The problem is not that food and drink and lawful pleasure are bad things, but it's that we tend to try to make them carry a greater load than they're meant to carry. We try to get out of them more than they're meant to give us. That's the main problem. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul is writing to Timothy, and in the context of false teachers that were uh, forbidding marriage and forbidding certain foods, uh, Paul told Timothy this. He says, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Of course, he's responding to these men who are teaching you have to abstain from marriage you shouldn't eat certain foods and to this he's saying no these things are made good by god and if they're received with thanksgiving then they should be enjoyed made holy by the word of god in prayer so they're good things when received with thanksgiving to god so when you sit down to enjoy a meal with your family this is maybe timely given mother's day is it right for you to enjoy it Yes, this is a gift to you from God. It is good for you to be thankful for it. 
to praise God for it and to enjoy that time together. We tend to think that there's all these other things that we ought to be doing right now. You know this feeling. It's hard to just sit down and eat. You have to try to find time for these things and just to enjoy the moment, enjoy the meal, enjoy the company you're with because the phone is dinging. There's other things. These are crazy times. There's all this stuff that calls to us that's really, really important. We should be doing eating. This kind of thing just seems so mundane. We do it all the time, of course. There's always something greater we think we ought to be doing or reaching. But this is one of the good things in life that God has given you. It's his gift to you. So I would encourage you to view these things that way. As gifts from God to you. And of course, we know, yes, uh, you can become lavish in your lifestyle. You can abuse these good gifts. We've talked about that Solomon has talked about that. He pursued pleasure, all these things. We've been there earlier in chapter two. But don't make the mistake then of trading that error for another and thinking that therefore these things are all bad. And if you enjoy anything, then you're guilty of some sort of sin. Receive them as gifts from God and seek to enjoy these realities. That view is fundamentally different than the idolater's position. Right? The idolater just wants the thing and just elevates that. He's after something in particular. That's what he wants. That's the ultimate in his heart. It's a completely different thing to receive that with thanksgiving from God and to enjoy that such as it is. It may not be the greatest meal you've ever eaten, uh, but it's God's gift to you. And it's right for you to just enjoy that moment and be thankful for it. Again, we think that that's maybe not enough. We should be doing more. We, you know, we should quickly eat and then go maybe, you know, this, the spiritual thing would be to then quickly get through this and go read or something like that. And of course, reading's good. I am all for that. But so is sitting there eating with your family. The good things in life are to be enjoyed as gifts from God. But he continues, this also I saw is from the hand of God, verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Solomon tells us the ability to eat and find enjoyment in life is not possible apart from God. These are gifts that he gives. And that question in verse 25 is rhetorical. Apart from God, nobody can eat or find enjoyment. Notice it's not just that he gives the gift of food even, but he gives the gift of enjoyment. This is from the hand of God for, because apart from him, who can eat or apart from him, who can have enjoyment? Answer, nobody. That's what he's saying. Nobody. God alone is the sustainer and provider for this world. That we have food on our shelves owes ultimately to God's provision. We tend to think, and certainly people around us tend to think of these things in just very natural ways. Man plants food. Man then harvests that food. 
Man ships that food. Man delivers that food to the store. Man works. Man gets paid. Man buys groceries. Man eats. Man repeats the process. However, the scriptures teach repeatedly that working through those secondary means is a sovereign God of the universe. And if he so chose, he would decree famine. He would decree pestilence. He would decree war. And then what of your food supply? Who can eat apart from God? Psalm 104 says even, even there we see the young lions, it says, roar for their prey, seeking their food from nature. No, seeking their food from God. We must not think of nature as something existing outside of God's providence, as if it's just kind of on its own, doing its own thing, some closed system, and God's just somewhere else. The lion ultimately gets its food supplied by the Lord. God has created this world. He has created this world such that there is food. He has ordained that we would eat in order to survive. He is the one who sustains this world and provides for it. This is why Romans 1 can tell us that one of man's fundamental sins, Romans 1.21, is not thanking God. We know we ought to look up and be able to see his divine power in the things that have been created, to look around us and understand that ultimately there is the creator God who is behind all of this, the ultimate cause. And therefore, we ought to thank him when we have our needs provided for. And yet we don't. Obviously, possessing food is needed in order to enjoy food. God is the dispenser of this food. One obvious, I think, application here, so we think of this you know, food and, and the enjoyment of that food being a gift from God, is that if you're struggling to receive things with thanksgiving, if you're having a hard time just enjoying food, work, your home, etc., then this would indicate, I think, among other things, that you ought to pray for these things. You ought to pray that you would, in your heart, be content with the things that God has given you, that you would be able to find enjoyment in those things. That you wouldn't need the meal to always satisfy your flesh in every way in order to just be glad and to be enjoying the moment. It's what's God, it's ultimately what God has given you. God is the dispenser of these things, and He's the dispenser of the, the gifts of the gift of enjoyment, even of these things, then appeal to Him to teach you contentment, to teach you joy in what He's given you. Renew your mind on these matters. Repent of any trying to make too much of the gifts that He's given you, such that you're dissatisfied if you're not eating out or whatever it might be. Seek gratitude in what He's given you. View what you have as his gift from God, from him to you. To be enjoyed, to be stewarded well. Verse 26, we see that this gift in its ultimate form is reserved for God's people. This gift in its ultimate form is reserved for God's people. It is true 
certainly that all men and women who eat have received mercy from God. But God gives the fuller grasp of life and its enjoyment, a true understanding of the good things of life uh, being a gift. He gives that to believers, ultimately. Uh, If you back up to verse 25 for a moment, when Solomon is giving a reason here, he's giving support for why he said eating and enjoying life is a gift from the hand of God. He says, for, because, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So as we've seen, it's from God. Because it's God's domain. He's the provider. He's the giver of such. So we need him in order to be able to enjoy these things. Then in verse 26, he gives further reasoning. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to then give to one who pleases God. So notice again. God is the giver of wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And notice also how he does not, according to this, he does not give that to every single person. To others, it says, he's given a different task, namely the business of gathering and collecting, only to then one day hand that off to another. Now, there are two types of people that are mentioned here. Uh, there's the one who pleases God, and then there's the sinner, two different groups. Now, I want to think about this for just a, a few minutes to consider who makes up these groups. Who is this talking about? The one who pleases God and the sinner. Who, who are these people? I think we might initially say, well, uh, this has to be believers and unbelievers. If one is to please God, then one must have faith. Right? Faith in God and in his promise to save all who trust in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Without faith, we know it is impossible to please God. So in the Old Testament, they would be uh, looking forward to the promise of God to send the Messiah, to send the son of David, this one who would come, an offspring of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent, to reverse this uh, curse that has entered into the world because of sin. In the New Testament, of course, we're looking in After the New Testament, we're looking back. We know that Messiah has come. Jesus has come. We're trusting in him. We're looking ahead to the final renewal of all things. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Moreover, this phrase, the one who pleases God, as it's translated in the ESV, could also be translated, perhaps more literally, the man that is good before his face. The man who is good before God which would even more suggest that this is talking about a believer. For no one is good inherently, but must be counted righteous by faith. This was so of Abraham in the Old Testament. This is so of Paul in the New Testament. This is so of anyone who has ever been good before God. It's been credited to them by faith. And then, of course, we know the term sinner. That seems pretty straightforward, referring to unbelievers. The only challenge with this interpretation comes near the end of the verse when he says that to the sinner has been given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. So if the one who pleases God is a believer, then this seems to be saying that believers will receive the things that unbelievers toil for. 
And yet, that's not really our experience, is it? It doesn't really seem to be the world that we live in. You and I don't just, you know, if an unbelieving neighbor were to die or to pass away, we don't, they don't just hand over their stuff to us. We're not in a position to go over there and demand they give us their stuff. This seems like a difficult uh, verse to explain. And so some have made alternative explanations, different, different understandings. I think there's some that are plausible, but ultimately I think those explanations also create other difficulties. So uh, some would say that he, when he talks about those who please him here, that group is just those to whom it pleases God to give certain gifts. You know, it talks about sinners. It's not really sinners as we think about it. It's more those who God passes over, uh, those who miss out on this gift. God doesn't give it to them. And then when they die after they've accumulated all these goods, uh, then they just have to hand it over to whomever it pleases God to give those, uh, those goods to. So the emphasis then would just be that, you know, some people get and receive and enjoy and other people do not and then just hand it over. And, and, and then it's, you know, the, the, the vaporous part at the end of the verse is just these are God's designs and plans. We can't ultimately uh, fully get our head around why one person enjoys and another person does not. I think that understanding is possible. Uh, I think it's it's certainly true, um, but I, I don't ultimately think that that is a better explanation of this text. I think we should stick with this understanding that it is talking about uh, believers and it is talking about unbelievers ultimately. It makes better sense of the words that are used here for one thing. And also there is a parallel passage that says almost the exact same thing in Proverbs 13, 22. There it says, a good man, so there's the word good, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So very similar wording also by Solomon. But just before we try to tackle that difficulty, uh, notice what this verse is saying first, that wisdom, knowledge, and joy are given to God's people. Derek Kidner writes this, the vital contrast in this verse is between the satisfying spiritual gifts of God, wisdom, knowledge, and joy, which only those who please him can desire or receive, and the frustrating business of amassing what cannot be kept, a business which is the chosen lot of those who reject him. So this is saying that God has given to believers wisdom, knowledge, and joy. And of course, while the experience of joy fluctuates in a believer, and while wisdom and knowledge are not perfect and are often lacking, these are nevertheless true gifts that God has given to his children. Believers possess a true wisdom that begins with fear of the Lord. There is a true knowledge that you have as a believer. For example, that this is God's world, ultimately. Just, just understanding that piece of knowledge, wisdom, uh, gives you a, a I mean, it is, is, is so basic to us as Christians, and yet is so lacking in our world. Understanding human nature, 
We are not only created beings created by God, but are fallen and sinful. This is true in good knowledge and wisdom. Of course, knowing the way of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. True knowledge. The Bible also teaches us joy. True joy is a fruit of the spirit. That's a, that's a, a fruit that is built up in believers. In those who are born again by the Spirit of God. And yet these gifts, these gifts are not given to every person. In God's sovereign purposes, he has not ordained that all men and women will have such. To others, it says, to sinners, it calls them, it is given to spend their lives toiling and acquiring, maybe with some measure of enjoyment, but maybe not, only to die and hand it all off. And his conclusion then at the end of verse 26 is that this is ultimately vanity. Now as for God giving what sinners collect to the one who pleases him. I begin by saying I think that we need to say that this is this, the same group mentioned at the start of the verse. This, the one who pleases God, that phrase is, is used at the start. Uh, they've been given to enjoy enjoyment in life and, and those good gifts. And now they're mentioned again as receiving that for which the sinners have toiled. So it's the same group of people. So it's talking about believers receiving the things that the sinners have left behind, have toiled for. And again, we remark saying this doesn't really seem to be the way of reality. And indeed, elsewhere within Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to point to the fact that sometimes the righteous die while the wicked prosper. In chapter 7, he says that. Sometimes the righteous receive what the wicked really deserve. Chapter 8, he's going to say that. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, this obviously doesn't mean that believers always prosper. That believers are always receiving the goods of dying sinners. Ecclesiastes as a whole makes that very clear. So I would suggest that what Solomon is getting at here sometimes comes to pass in this life, but ultimately proclaims a truth that will be realized eschatologically or in the end. So I just want to take a few minutes to try to explain what I mean by this. In the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel were promised a land. Uh, Abraham was promised the land of Canaan from the Lord. That promise was repeated then to his son, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Then if we fast forward quite a ways to Moses, Moses ends up being sent back to Egypt by the Lord, as you remember this account, to lead the people out of Egypt. And on their way out, do you remember what they did to the Egyptians as they left? What the people of Israel did to the Egyptians on their way out? Exodus 12, 35 and 36 says they plundered them on their way out. They did this by asking, asking for wealth. They asked them for stuff. They basically said, give us that stuff. And they did. They just handed it all over. 
And this was a, a judgment, one of God's judgments on the people of Egypt. He said to them in advance, you will plunder the Egyptians on your way out. And they asked for stuff on their way, and they just had it handed to them. This is where they would have gotten much of the, the gold and things they would have used to build the tabernacle, the vine twine, linen, and all that kind of stuff. They plundered Egypt to get it. All these judgments that God had sent, these plagues culminating in the Passover, and then on their way out, they're, they're handed this stuff. Just get out of here. And they hand over their wealth to the people of Israel. This is a blessing of God to his people. Then as the nation formalized what the New Testament calls the Old Covenant at Sinai. And God then took them from there eventually into the promised land of Canaan. Uh, listen to what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 6 verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Notice God gave his people that for which the Canaanites had labored. He judged them through Joshua's conquest. And distributed their goods to his people. So this is a real life example of this Ecclesiastes 2.26 statement. Further, as part of that old covenant, there was the promise, which we read earlier, Deuteronomy 28. There was the promise of blessing in the land of Canaan if the nation was obedient to the Lord. This blessing, according to Deuteronomy 28, included abounding in prosperity, including God opening the good treasury, the heavens, and spilling rain out on the land that it might grow and they would have abundance. And under Solomon, as we have seen, foreign nations brought riches and tribute to lay at his feet. There was abundance in the land. They were prospering. It was really the height of blessing in the land. And all of this typifies or points ahead to or is a picture of the blessings that we have in the new covenant. We who are God's people today in the new covenant, Christ has ushered in in his blood. Are, we are not guaranteed wealth and goods in abundance, uh, no matter how faithful we are. Think of the most faithful. I mean, some of the most faithful men and women in history have gone to the stake. We don't live under the old covenant, so we can't claim the promise of material prosperity if we are simply faithful. And we know even under the old covenant at times, the Lord's people, even those who were faithful, often still suffered. But those promises, were they governed national Israel in the land of Canaan. But as I said, those realities do picture something that is even greater than prosperity in the land of Canaan. Something greater that we receive as members of the new covenant by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive in Christ all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus Christ has obeyed the law of God and has attained blessings that he distributes to all who are in him. All who place their faith in him, who are united 
to Christ by faith. We receive his blessings that he has earned through his life of obedience, his death and his resurrection. So these blessings include the forgiveness of sins, sanctification, etc. And one of those blessings is the promise of a full inheritance that we have not yet received, that it await, is awaiting us, is being stored for us. This is the inheritance that was preached a couple of weeks ago by Kevin from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. This is the promise of the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state. And my understanding of that eternal state of the new heavens and new earth is that it will be this earth after God has purged it and refined it. That it will then, as Romans 8 discusses, be released from its bondage to sin when the Lord Jesus returns. And the curse is completely lifted. And so at that time will come to pass what Jesus said when he declared, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It will come to pass in its fullness. And so at the end, the unbelieving will be judged and defeated. And all that they have attained will be stripped from them. The entirety of the new earth will then belong, obviously it is the Lord's, but it will then belong to the Lord's people to dwell in with resurrected bodies for eternity. And there are places where the scripture would seem to maybe indicate that while nothing unclean or unholy will enter the new Jerusalem, that much is crystal clear. While nothing unclean or unholy will enter the new Jerusalem, the wealth and glory of the nations will. Meaning possibly, notice my lack of dogmatic certainty here on this point, possibly the best of what is on earth through this age, will be brought into the new creation. Isaiah 60, verse 12, which I do believe speaks of the new earth, says the people will bring to you the wealth of the nations. Now, this could be typological and therefore not to be viewed as, as literal wealth coming in. Others would place that in, in the future. Sure, what Ecclesiastes is making clear here is that the sinner is on a futile quest fulfillment in his toil. As we have seen, death will come. He's going to leave it for another. Ultimately, all of the wicked will be judged, and the new heavens and new earth will belong to those whom God has redeemed to dwell forever with him, basking in the glory of God. And so as verse 26 comes to an end here, it would seem to be this plight of the sinner that is referred to when he says, that every, this is a vanity and a striving after wind. Again, what the sinner is seeking to gain through their toil and hold on to is just clutching at air. So again, the good things in life are to be enjoyed as gifts of God. And ultimately, this can really only fully be experienced and known by believers. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 26 says it is for you to receive your food and drink with gladness of heart and enjoyment. It's given to you, it says. 
It is right. It is good for you to seek out whatever enjoyment you can find in your work. For some, it might, that might just require a, an attitude shift to stop complaining about work, to embrace it as God's gift to you. And I'm not trying to downplay that there are difficult jobs or jobs that we don't enjoy. We live in a fallen world. This is part of the curse. But God has nevertheless placed you where he has, and it is his provision for you. He's the one who has given you the work you do have. And as we've seen many times in scripture, it is your vocation in which you serve him ultimately. So again, I would just exhort you to receive the good and lawful things of life as what they are, as God's children, they're his gifts to you. To receive them with thanksgiving, and such as you are able to then have those gifts cause you to look up, give thanks to God, and praise him. Let's pray together.